know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz. We are here to talk with you about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. A little bit later on, we'll talk with you about some upcoming events here in the South Coast area where you can hopefully encounter the paranormal one-on-one on your own. Coming very close to Supernatural Siege at Fort Tabor on October 12th and Haunted History Night on October 20th at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham. So uh, later on, we'll give you all the info about how you can get tickets to those. But if you want to check out the website for Legend Trips during the program, it's legendtrips.com, and it's also linked up on the front page of spookysouthcoast.com, where normally we would be broadcasting on Spooky TV, where we have our in-studio video cameras and our chat room going. And we we have the video streaming going. Uh, We're having issues with the audio, so if you're in there... It's a bad cord. Yeah, it's it's a bad everything tonight. So if you're in there uh, and you're watching on Spooky TV and you need the audio, just click on the WBSM audio stream and you'll pick it up that way. And uh, obviously then there'll be no video recording on YouTube for this show because that's just too much work to try to sync all that stuff up. <laughs> but uh, hopefully we'll have the problem fixed. I'll, I'll buy some new cords this week, and if, if that's the problem, problem solved. If not, well, I don't know. The rest of it goes beyond my capabilities. They don't really like me drilling into the walls here. At WBSM, not fans of that. They won't let me drill into hole. They won't let me drill into the floor at the Fearing Tavern. They won't let me drill into the walls at Lizzie Borden's. I mean, I spent all this money on a brand new drill, and nobody will let me use it. Uh, I have faith in you. All right, then I'll bring it to your house and start putting some holes in. Okay. <laughs> He's like nothing that I haven't already done. <laughs> all right. Well, we are going to have a fantastic show for you tonight because our guest tonight is Linda Godfrey, and uh, this. When you talk about some of the different things that we talk about on the show, I mean, we talk a lot about ghosts. We talk a lot about UFOs. We talk a lot about a lot of strange and unusual things. But we we always seem to have a difficult time getting really into the uh, discussion of the the creatures. You know, in some cases, we're talking about cryptids, which, you know, they may be legitimate, scientific, flesh-and-blood creatures. Uh, and then there's also the ones that are more of the... Uh, mytholo- mythological folklore aspect, and, and then there's that line in the middle where the two of them meet. And our guest tonight, Linda Godfrey, she walks that line quite a bit. Uh, she is an author, investigator, and artist with a penchant for lapso-apsos and werewolves. So, hey, there you go. That sounds like your perfect woman, Monies. I used to have losses as a kid. <laughs> and you're a werewolf, so um. it works out well. <laughs> Her books include Weird Wisconsin and Weird Michigan, as well as the sequel Strange Wisconsin and Strange Michigan, uh, The Poison Widow, The Beast of Bray Road, Hunting the American Werewolf, and uh, of course her latest book uh, is is about, we're, we're talking about uh, some, some really intriguing stuff with her latest work. So let's bring her on and we'll have her talk about it with us. Uh, we are happy to welcome to the program Linda Godfrey. Good evening, Linda. How are you? Great to be with you. Oh, we're we're so thrilled to have you i mean we've been uh been reading your stuff for years and, and we've been talking about your work on the show so we're Thank glad you. we could finally get you here well i'm glad to be here <laughs> now the the title of the new book is is what real wolf men true encounters in modern america 
So basically, it's uh, you know, you know a, a listing of uh, all the Moni's relatives that are out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's more than a listing. Um, what they actually, uh, Tartar Penguin asked me to do was put together what I thought were the very best encounter reports from the first three books that I wrote on this topic, and then add in um, speculation and some of the best theories. So it's sort of the best of the best, and, you know, as many as I could cram into that book, you know, I had a word count limit, unfortunately, but I think people will still be amazed at how many are in there, and especially to know that there are many, many more in the other books that did not make it in. And that doesn't even count the ones that have come in over the past year since I turned in that manuscript. Well, I think what's interesting is if you follow along with your uh, career and, and your writing, is you're starting off writing for some smaller publishers, and, and now you're writing books uh, about this topic for publishers like Penguin. It just goes to show that there is an audience out there for this stuff, right. which means that there must be a, a, a massive amount of sightings coming in these days. There are lots. It's been 20 years since I started, um, back with the, the original newspaper story that broke the, the news of the Beast of Bray Road. And I still get an average of one to three reports a week. You know, sometimes it's, it's none, but other times it'll be five, um, usually one or two. And I just find that amazing that after all these years, people are still finding me and saying it's really good to finally talk to someone who won't think I'm crazy. I saw this thing. You know, they're just all so similar. Well, now, to those who follow along with Creature Stories, The Beast of Bray Road is uh, a seminal story, but why don't you share for, for those who might not be familiar uh, what exactly that, that is all about. Well, I was working and had really just started as a reporter for uh, the Walworth County Week, which was a newspaper in southeastern Wisconsin, and somebody tipped me off that people around my own hometown of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, were saying that they were seeing what they described as a werewolf on this two-mile country road called Bray Road, just east of town. And they were, to my surprise, phoning in the reports to the county animal control officer. And, of course, I was very skeptical, but I thought to myself, well, when you are planning a hoax, you don't usually notify the authorities and leave your address and your phone number, you know, where, where they can grab you and charge you with fraud later on. So that intrigued me. And uh, the officers shared with me those uh, names and addresses. And when I began to visit and interview these people, I discovered to my surprise that they did not seem crazy. They did not seem like liars. I was impressed with the variety of people. There were everything from old, young, um, women, men, blue-collar, white-collar, farmers, you name it. They were all, it was this cross-section of people. And... The creature they described was pretty consistent, whereas you'd think if people were having individual hallucinations, you know, there's no reason for everybody to be seeing the same thing. Many of them were unaware that other people had seen it. So um, I thought this really had some uh, enough of a basis that it deserved a story, and I thought if nothing else, people needed to know that there was a possibly dangerous predator-type animal in the area, and perhaps even if it was only what turned out to be the beginning of some new folklore, that deserved to be recorded, too. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing happened to go national in two weeks, however, which was really unanticipated. I never in my wildest dreams thought that would happen. 
And then I never really um, got over the fact that over the 10 years I wrote for that newspaper, it never stopped. People, and that was before, you know, the early 90s was before we had Twitter and Facebook, and mm -hmm. really most people weren't even doing email back then. So they had to work some to find me, you know, and write the newspaper. And I even at one point tried foisting off all my files on the local library and having people write to them, but that didn't work out. They wanted to talk to me. So after 10 years, I quit the paper and went back to teaching part-time so that I could write books. Well, when as you said, though, this was at a time period where uh, they had to work to find you, and that means they also had to really work to find these stories. I mean, uh, newspapers, of course, were, were a lot different business back then. There were a lot more people reading them every day, but... Uh, it, it's not like the Internet where things just kind of take off on a message board and then people right. want to be part of the story. Right. I mean, this had to be something that was very organic. Yeah, it was, you know, and um, most of the time people would hear about me second or third hand. They'd, they'd hold stories in for years, and then they'd finally tell their cousin, and their cousin would say, oh, well, you haven't heard of the Beast of Bray Road. And then they would just, you know, track down the, the story and, and find me. I mean, there there was the internet you could you could search um you know I, i'm not even sure we had google then i think the top engine might have been i'm, I'm not even sure what it was at the Probably time alta vista back then or something even before that it's like ancient history but yeah, i know. mean there was there there was an internet but i mean how many people actually had access to it and how many people that could find it knew how to use it exactly so um it was just surprising and i got letters from not just wisconsin but all over the united states and other countries you know, um, I remember getting one from the Virgin Islands telling me about something similar there. People were telling me that um, their relatives who had been in World War One and World War Two saw upright canine-type creatures in the countryside of France and Germany, you know, and had just told certain family members. So it was just um, a, an amazing revelation for me to realize that I had stumbled onto something that was not just a little local sideshow story. It was a worldwide phenomenon, and I thought that it deserved to be recorded. You know, I did not know what it might turn out to be or where it would take me, but that it, 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 somebody needed to be keeping track of these things. So I kind of call myself the accidental werewolf chronicler. <laughs> well, now, how do you go about, though, uh, continuing that? Because, as you said, you're going to have these continued sightings of what's in your area, but how do you start piecing all together the pieces of, uh, piecing together the pieces, how do you start putting together all the pieces of all these stories that are not only in your area, but kind of internationally, there, there's been werewolf sightings throughout history? Right, right. And um, I actually wrote one book called Werewolves for Chelsea House in New York that deals more with the history, and I kind of give an abbreviated version of it in each of the other books, mm -hmm. too, so... Um, and, and that does go back, the idea of part wolf, part man, although I don't think that's what these creatures are, goes you know back thousands and thousands of years to our earliest civilizations. It's something that seems to have always been around. And it's really hard to analyze the ones that are, you know, five or 6,000 years old. But you can go back and see the pictures that are left, you know, drawn on rocks um, back in old Anatolia or present-day Turkey, for instance, or the ancient Egyptian gods, such as Anubis, you know, which had a jackal head. So, so there's the history aspect. Um, but then what I try to do when I get sightings 
And oftentimes they come about because people hear me on radio shows like yours or Coast to Coast AM or um, Dreamland, that sort of thing. Um, or sometimes, um, well, every time one of my new books comes out, it triggers another landslide of, of sightings. Whenever there's um, a, a triggering event where people can hear about it, then they write me or, or find me somehow, somehow or another. But when I get these reports, what I like to do, and um, I, I do this more and more, I, I wish I had started out this way, but I immediately, well, of course, we didn't have the mapping resources that we have now. Now we have Google Earth, and it's so easy to just map out what geographical features are nearby, and you can map them in comparison to other sightings. I also look for human artifacts, such as uh, cemeteries, military installations, uh, roadways, um, types of forests, that kind of thing. Uh, or I should say uh, old sacred sites that are in forests, that kind of thing. Because I find really weird commonalities with these aspects, too. You know, there are certain habitats that seem preferred and certain areas of human habitation that um, also appear to, to attract these creatures or at least seem to be major hiding, hot, major sighting hotspots. Well, I mean, what are some of the commonalities in, in these locations? Well, geographically, the big common denominator is water. And you can look at that two ways. If they're natural animals, of course, they're going to need water, especially if they're carnivores and have a lot of protein to digest. It's really, really important. Um, but then if you look at many of these types of places, crossroads, cemeteries, um, even military installations, they're the exact same spots that are hot spots for Great Britain's phantom black hounds. And many uh, European and, and in other countries, too, uh, sites where supernatural encounters take place. So this is the big bugaboo that's followed me for 20 years, is every time I think I have evidence to show that it's probably a natural creature that's somehow adapted to walk upright, then I'll get a flurry of sightings that have these other aspects to them, and vice versa. Well, that's what's uh, very interesting about your research, is you have put a lot of uh, work and, and time into the idea that they could be just some sort of wolf or, or canine or, or some sort of creature of, of that uh, of that ilk that's been able to adapt to walking like humans. And I, I mean, I don't really see the possibility of that without it being a huge leap in the evolution of those creatures from the common types that we see. Right. You know, and again, I have to stress that this is strictly my conjecture and speculation. I don't claim to be laying out any kind of scientific proof or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's simply my trying to take it a different way and say, well, what would be um, the advantages if a canine did start walking upright? Because after all, it's not an impossible physical activity. It's not like they're suddenly sprouting wings and flying. Um, you can go on YouTube and find all kinds of walking dogs that can walk and run perfectly well upright if they're... Um, trained and motivated to do so while in captivity, or sometimes in the wild if they lose a forelimb, you know, and it's the only, although it's really rare for that to happen in the wild, and of course most of these sightings are of obviously feral, you know, or wild creatures. So 
um, you know, it, the idea of the missing forelimb, which is always brought up to me, doesn't really make too much sense. Usually what happens is that an animal that severely injured cannot hunt and doesn't live long, hmm. much less be able to, you know, produce. However, um, you know, just in my own mind, thinking, thinking it through, um, it occurred to me, for one thing, there's a major concentration around the Great Lakes prairie states. And what if at some point um, a, a natural dog or wolf hybrid combination um, found itself able to uh, see farther across the prairie grasses if it stood on its hind legs, discovered that it could carry its prey in its forelimbs and instead of um, inefficiently dragging it along on the ground where other things could come and try and get at it, you know, there would actually be some advantages. And the more that it did that, um, neuroscientists will tell you that uh, your brain cells develop and learn new patterns when you expose them to different activities. So perhaps that would make them more intelligent, more elusive. You know, and again, this is just speculation. I had one reviewer say that I was trying to prove the scientific case, and <laughs> you know nothing could be further from the pr from the truth than that because I really don't claim that there's any great science to this. But logically, um, you could argue that if this were the case, creatures that have somewhat longer paws would probably have an advantage because it would be easier to hold things and they would be able to balance easier. And that's one thing that people do say. Witnesses who observe these creatures will say, well, they had paws. You know, I could see very long claws, but they seemed a little bit longer than a normal dog's or wolf's paws would be. And indeed, that is one of the best um, types of evidence we have is the footprints that are left behind. And they just seem like extremely large wolf prints. In fact, I measured some myself that were six and a half inches wide, which is huge. Even for the largest timber, it's larger than the largest timber wolf print would be. And sometimes they even show, uh, if, we, if the prints show an animal uh, caught springing after a deer, and we have some examples like that too, there will be an additional imprint from um, the bone, and bone where, that we would compare with our heel and ankle joints, sometimes kind of bending down to give it an extra spring. So I can see that there are advantages and possibilities, and it wouldn't even really need to be a huge um, difference in, in species or anything like that, just sort of an adaptation for longer paws, greater size, and perhaps this accumulated knowledge, because it's shown that wolves do teach their young certain things, and you know it might be partly uh, physically adapted and partly sort of a, a passed on, I hate to say cultural trait, but a behavioral trait well, would be it. And the thing is that these things don't look part human. They have completely canine features. It's just their behavior of walking and running upright, using their paws in ways that you wouldn't expect them to. And then the third thing is they seem to have this attitude or uncanny intelligence that really freaks people out. They feel that the creature um, feels superior to them, or they'll say, well, I felt it was really angry that I saw it. You know, that's not something you say if you see a bear. You don't say, well, right. I saw this bear, and it was really mad that I saw it. You know, <laughs> bears don't care if you see <laughs> He's them. mad if you don't give him that picnic basket. Yeah, exactly. They just they want well, the picnic basket, or they want you to leave their cubs alone. 
they're not mad that you saw them, you know. And they're also really pretty easy to get on camera, where these things are not. All right. Well, we are uh, we're coming up on the end of the first hour here. Uh, we have to take a news break. Uh, thanks, Red Sox. But we'll be back uh, coming up in the second hour after the news, uh, Linda, and uh, we can get a little bit further into uh, in depth on this. We'll also take calls from the listeners. 508-996-0500-1877-996-1420. We'll be right back after the news here on Spooky South Coast. The supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420 WBSN presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costner. back hour number two of spooky south coast actually it's like half hour number two and two out of three the good news is is there will be no more red sox games this year pushing us off the air because this is the last saturday night game for them and there was much rejoicing yay well this season was over quite a while ago i would have preferred if they just decided to play one o'clock day games for the rest of the saturdays because well there was no need to keep playing them <laughs> at 7 o'clock. But, uh, yeah, thankfully that season's over, and uh, we still are in Patriots season uh, here at WBSM, so tune in tomorrow at 1 o'clock for the Pats in Buffalo. Uh, the pregame show starts at 10 a.m., so uh, definitely check out all the Patriots action here on WBSM all season long. I promise you, despite the fact they just lost two games in a row, that there'll be a better ending to their season than there is to the Red Sox season. Now, uh, I did mention at the beginning of the show, before we get back into our discussion uh, with Linda Godfrey about some of these strange creatures that she writes about in her many books, uh, I had mentioned at the beginning of the program about two great events that are coming up. Uh, and that would be the Legend Trips events that Spooky South Coast and Ghost Village put on together. It's a joint effort between ourselves and Jeff Belanger. And it's really, uh, for, for my, I don't want to say for my money, since obviously I don't pay to get into them since we put them on but you know for anybody's money i'd say it's probably one of the the, the best times you'll have this october because it's going to be a little bit of everything and sure it's going to be creepy it's going to be you know it's going to be one of those strange halloweeny type feel events but at the same time it's also a legitimate paranormal investigation so you get the best of both worlds you get to be creeped out a little bit uh, close to halloween but you also get to go out there and investigate for the paranormal on your own with seasoned investigators uh, you get to use some of our equipment we show you how to use them uh, and it's really, uh, for, for us, it's the joy of seeing somebody have an experience for the first time. Uh, we are way too busy, <laughs> really, <laughs> running these things to, to have paranormal experiences of our own, more or less. Uh, but that hasn't stopped some really strange things from happening at some Legend Trips events. On a couple of occasions, we have had interesting things happen to us personally. And a lot of stuff happens to people on the events, but we're, we're, we're too busy, you know keeping things going we're bringing in a lot of different energies with all these people a lot of different approaches and a lot of different theories so they all come together and it, it's it's quite an interesting evening of course you get dinner we include uh usually pizza and salad and drinks and snacks all night long complimentary part of your ticket price and you'll get uh, lectures you'll also be part of a live taping of 30 odd minutes 
and it's 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 a full night's worth of entertainment. Tickets are $99, and the first event is October 12th at Fort Tabor here in New Bedford. You're going to get to investigate the actual fort itself, which is never open to the public. A couple times a year when they do historical reenactments, and good luck getting into the fort itself during those events because it's so busy. But you're going to get your chance to be inside Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman, and check out the inside for yourself. We'll also be exploring the batteries around the 47 acres of land down there, including the Millican Battery, which is three stories underground. That's where I think I'm going to position myself all night because once I go three stories underground, I don't want to get back up. And uh, then we'll also be having uh, our usual uh, format for the pro for the uh, night's events where uh, we'll all stay stationed in certain locations and the groups the small groups will rotate through now even though we sell a lot of tickets to these events we try to keep the group small you know no more than 15 20 people per group so that you get the opportunity to investigate with a small number of people around you and you'll just go from one zone to the other and meet up with each person each legend trip staff member along the way and then uh, october 20th is haunted history night at the wareham historical society's group of buildings in downtown Wareham, uh, the Fearing Tavern, which was built in 1690, the one-room schoolhouse, the Union Chapel, and the old Methodist meeting house, which are all from the 1800s. Those will all be open for investigation that night. And again, same format, dinner, lectures. Uh, you'll get a chance to uh, be part of, I don't know if we're doing the 30-odd minutes at both the fort and uh, the, the Haunted History Night, but I know we're definitely doing it at Haunted History Night. And uh, you'll get to investigate all those buildings as well. Rotate through them with us. The most interesting part of this, of doing these events, because we've never done them uh, uh, in back-to-back fashion like this. We have one October 12th, one October 20th. Usually they're months and months apart. What I'm interested in seeing is if the fact that we're out there two weeks in a row, and a lot of the same people will be out there with us two weeks in a row. I mean, will spirits be more active? Will there be ones that follow us from Fort Tabor to Wareham to keep communicating with us? Will there be some around us anyway that are just coming along for the ride on these trips? It's, it's going to be interesting. It's a, it's a whole different dynamic. Well, what about the ones that other people may bring with them? So I'm sure some of them have a whole bunch of them riding along with them at all times. So uh, it's it's going to be probably two of the craziest nights that we'll ever have <laughs> trying to pull this <laughs> off uh, in back-to-back weeks. But uh, it should be a fun time for you. If you want to attend, again, tickets are $99 are available on legendtrips.com. You can also uh, book a room at the Hampton Inn in Fairhaven at a special reduced rate for both events. All the information is up there on legendtrips.com. And we just added the information up there, too, to be able to book spirit medium readings from either Tiffany Rice or Stephanie Burke, our two spirit mediums that will be along with us at both events. Uh, They do the reading portion during the lectures. And then they come out and they take part in the investigation after that. So it's going to be uh, another tool in the toolbox, as we like to say. Another uh, way for you to communicate with spirits and investigate. You know, you can try and see if what's coming through on your different devices, your ovulus and whatever else, is also another in play with of, what they say. It's just another source of data generation. Mm-hmm. And And so many people have gone to these events, had a reading, and come back and said, whoa, you know, I can't believe that they were able to make that connection that they... They could. So those readings are available for an extra $30 for a 20-minute personalized one-on-one reading. So, again, legendtrips.com, that's the place to go. Tickets are going fast. There's not that many left, and there's not much time left. And they get fed. Yeah, you can't go wrong. I mean, pizza and salad, that everybody likes that. And if you don't, 
What's wrong with you? <laughs> and if you don't, we'll come up with something else for you. Just let us know. So, again, legendtrips.com. That's the website. And uh, tickets are going fast, so pick them up. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, like, within the next week or two, they'll probably be all gone. So make sure that you act fast if you're interested. Okay, now that we made our guest, Linda Godfrey, <laughs> sit through a commercial for, <laughs> for Legend Trips, let's bring her back on the phone because we were talking, we were having a fascinating discussion about some of her work, uh, especially in the realm of werewolves and, and the Beast of Bray Road in particular, which is where she got her start. One thing that I've always wondered, Linda, with these werewolf stories that we hear is you had mentioned in the first par- portion of the program that the reports are usually of strictly canine features for these creatures. Is the human wolf, you know, the lycanthropy picture that we uh, now know as a real medical condition, but is the human wolf hybrid face, is that a creation of Hollywood? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, You know, the idea of Jack Nicholson or Lon Chaney Jr. sprouting whiskers and going through this torturous, you know, nasal change (laughs) from a nose to a muzzle and sprouting all the fur and the legs changing, you know, that would have to involve so many changes at the cellular level down to the DNA that, you know, it just it sort of boggles the mind. Now, it's interesting because uh, people who are afflicted with this psychological condition of lycanthropy, and sometimes this is also can be uh, induced by certain psychotropic drugs, um, they may look in the mirror or look down at their arm and see first sprouting. They may mm-hmm. look and see staring back at them the face of a werewolf, but unless the other people with you have also have partaken of LSD or something else like that, which is uh, another, uh, just a few rare examples that I've found of that, they're not going to see anything except a human. Um, you know, and for instance, there's somebody who lives in a halfway house uh, outside of, uh, well, just in Walworth County, who will occasionally, I've, I've learned, go off of his meds and believe that he is the beast of Bray Road and will jump on people's cars naked. And when they call 911, they're not saying there's a werewolf on my car. They're saying there's a crazy naked guy on my car. So you kind of see the difference. It's, <laughs> I think I'd rather find a werewolf <laughs> on my car. Yeah. Um, but it, it really, to me, doesn't translate. And I do have people... Um, and, you know, and I give them all respect because everybody walks their own path in life, and, and I don't know what these people are really going through, but they write and insist that they need to be chained in the basement every full moon and, uh, you know, that they go through this transformation and that if left, left alone they would be out running around, you know, eating small mammals and things like that. And I always say, well, if that's true, next time set up a camera on a tripod and tape yourself or video yourself going through the transformation and send it to me. And I have yet to receive the first one. And the thing is, if people were really able to do that in the numbers that they uh, seem to claim, it would be all over YouTube. Mm-hmm. Well, one, one question that I do have, and I know I'm going to butcher this because uh, I'm not up to date on my medical terminology, but what about congenital hypertrichosis? Right. That is a condition where you have a purely human, totally otherwise normal human being who just happens to have a bad case of the hairiness. And that, you know, they're, they're covered, 96 to 98% of their body is covered with thick fur. 
Um, sometimes they even need to get operations to get it taken out of their ears and noses so they can hear them breathe. It's that thick. And it's very startling to see a human like this. Um, there's a whole family of them from Mexico, uh, the Gomez family, who've kind of taken advantage of it by becoming circus performers and actors. And there's another one known as Hair Boy from China who are current. Um, and these creatures, uh, they're not even creatures, they're humans. These people turn up from time to time in history. You see them sort of made um, into human pets in medieval courts in Europe. But the thing is, it's quite a rare condition. There aren't enough of them to account for all the sightings. And they don't go out usually and live in the woods. They're very civilized. They're humans, just like you and I. They're smart. They can play musical instruments. They like the comforts of you know, modern plumbing and heating and all that. And they don't look like animals. If you shaved them, you wouldn't be able to tell them from a normal human. So it's not like they... And one, you know, the hallmark of um, these dogman or wolfman sightings is that people will say, you know, I saw tall pointed ears on top of the head. I saw a long muzzle. It was covered with fur, but I saw fangs. I saw claws. I saw paws, not hands. You know, and even though it was running well on its hind legs, it seemed to be that its uh, it seemed to me that its legs were bent backwards because they're they're noticing the fact that canines run digitigrade or on their toe pads with what we would compare um, you know, to, to the heel and ankle up off the ground where we're expecting to see a knee. So it looks backwards, but it's really just the canine anatomy. So there's a real difference. One is the canine species. One is the human. And you, you really, I mean, you might be startled. You might think that it's, you'd probably be more likely to think that it was a juvenile Bigfoot, if anything, if you ran into one of these hairy people in the woods. Well, and that's, I think, is it's too easy to, to take a look at some of these rare disorders that affect people and place the blame on, on that exactly for these sightings that happen, especially when you're talking about not only uh, the canine features and, and the canine uh, mannerisms, but you're talking about in some of the attacks that were reported over the years, uh, a basic viciousness that probably goes beyond what a human being would, would be capable of. Right, yeah, they're, they're vicious, and not only that, they're just so widespread and going back so many, many decades, you know, that it's just impossible for one scenario like that to account for all of these sightings. Now, is there, uh, when you're looking at these reports of, of these man-wolves instead of, instead of wolf-mans, we'll say, but when you're, when you're seeing these uh, two-legged creatures or when you're hearing reports of these two-legged creatures, uh, what is probably the uh, m most astronomical part of the reports? Because I think if you're somebody who, who says, well, I don't believe in any of this stuff, you're more likely to believe in the idea that a, a canine-type creature can develop the ability to walk on two legs than you would be to think that you know, a, a human being can morph into one. Right. Uh, but, but there must be still some, uh, some uh, extraordinary uh, things that are reported in, in terms of these sightings. Well, there are. You know, and again... Probably the, the greatest percentage, probably over, well over 95% of the sightings don't involve anything that a natural canine could not do. You know, as I've said, they can easily walk on their hind legs if they're motivated or trained to do so. It's just that normally in the wild, neither of those things happens. You know, so we're not talking about them 
doing anything supernatural. However, once in a while, there are, there's a sighting, uh, there's one classification I call the bedroom invaders, where people will see an upright dog-like creature, usually they're jet black in this case, and have red glowing eyes instead of the normal yellow-green that most people associate with the, the other type of sighting, with the more natural type of sighting. And they um, look around, they disappear into thin air, and they generally act more like the great black phantom hounds of, of Great Britain. So to me, they probably aren't the same phenomenon. You know, and I've said in several of my books that um, just because you have a dog or wolf-like creature on its hind legs doesn't mean that every single one of these is coming from is the same phenomenon or coming from the same origin or source. So, you know, I, I do think it's possible that we've got uh, a couple of different things thrown in the mix. I think that when you look at some of the stories that you hear, I mean, obviously some of them are uh, mistaken animal sightings. You know, some of them are going to be right. perhaps uh, uh, somebody's not familiar with what a coyote or a wolf might look like in the wild or... A bear standing up on a, trying to reach something out of a branch on a tree. Sure. I mean, there's there's probably a lot of misidentification in these, but I'm sure you're getting reports from uh, people who are, are trained hunters, people right. who spend a lot of time in the woods, people who know the difference, especially when it comes to tracking. Right. Yeah. And um, they don't always leave tracks. Often if they're on the roadway, you know, the surface is too hard. Or uh, Actually, a good surface for taking tracks is sort of rare. You need... Um, a really nice firm soil or clay or packed sand, something like that, in order to get a, a good print. Although they do show up occasionally, you know, and I've gotten them myself. But um, the thing is, people who get a good look at this creature, or Bigfoot, and I do get Bigfoot reports too, are usually quite clear and quite firm and convinced about what they saw. You know, and for instance, in Wisconsin, they'll say, I've seen bears. And most people in Wisconsin have seen bears that's out in the wild, at least in, in the zoo. I know what a bear looks like. This was not a bear. Mm. This, and, in fact, um, one thing that I hear over and over is what I call the flip chart effect, where people will encounter these creatures, and they start this flip chart in their mind. Is it a bear? Is it a wolf? Is it a dog? No, no, no. Until they finally run to the end of the flip chart, and there's nothing left, and they have to say, I don't know what that thing is. And that's when the deep fear of the unknown sets in. That's when they step on the gas or run or, you know, do whatever they need to get out of the situation. And, you know, I've had uh, men who were, you know, six foot three, trained hunters and, and woodsmen and former um, Army veterans, combat veterans, who have said things to me like, you know, Linda, at that minute I was not a man. I was a little girl, you know, <laughs> screaming for my life. And it's this, and I think part of it is not even necessarily what the creature is doing, but the realization that they're facing something that seems impossible and that they can't, you know, neatly stack into any known um, uh, column, you know, of, of, of known creatures. And that's what really scares them so much. Well, now you had mentioned Bigfoot, and I know that you've done some research into that as well. Right. Uh, are there a lot of... Uh, overlay in the areas where these wolfmen and the Bigfoot sightings occur? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, 
usually where you find one, you'll find the other. And I, I found this out from mapping things out, you know, and comparing, um, comparing it. For instance, uh, southeastern Wisconsin is a good example. You find um, both Bigfoot and the Dogman in pretty good abundance, more than you would think in, in this uh, sort of a, a, a habitat. But they seem to sort of divide themselves into little territories where um, it, within a certain bandwidth of three going through three counties, I can pretty much tell you between here and here, it's going to be likely to be a Bigfoot sighting. And then if you get to this, this side of a creek and, and the other side, it's going to be dogman. So they seem to be sort of territorial. And I've been studying one area in another county for almost a year now. It's just a small stretch of, of a country road with farms. And we've had Bigfoot tracks, dogman tracks. That's where I was measuring those six-and-a-half-inch dogman prints just a few months ago where you could see it was tracking a deer through a cornfield and had a scuffle and the deer got away and went one way. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating. Just, just, it's fascinating and scary to think, wow, I can see there was something with six-and-a-half-inch wolf prints. And this was firm soil, not mud that was spreading out, so there was no question of them spreading to be larger. And I can see it was chasing a deer right here. And then across the street, we had 14-inch Bigfoot prints that we followed for nearly a mile into the field that just sort of ended. We couldn't tell where it went. It seemed to vanish into thin air. So you, there you have them both in the same row. And it, to me, it, it seems to tell a story because the dogman prints started being seen later that maybe they were trying to encroach on uh, the good hunting territory of these cornfields where the deer like to cluster and eat corn. And, and uh, it's my theory that both the Bigfoot and the dogman like to go in there and you know, they can find deer, possums, raccoons, everything likes to be in there eating the corn, and they can get around places that they can't the rest of the year without being seen. Well, that elusiveness definitely seems to be key uh, for their existence. Yes. And it makes you wonder, too, I mean, if, if they are in close proximity to each other and uh, we wonder how they interact with humans, you got to really wonder how they interact with each other. Yeah, it's fascinating. I have a feeling that they don't like each other. I really do. You know, because you never see them walking along side by side, that's for sure. That brings me to a question. How many reports do you get of multiple creatures sightings? Not as many as the single. The typical sighting is a single creature crossing the road or running alongside the road or suddenly being encountered out in the wilderness. But um, there are enough that uh, it makes a sizable quota or, or part of a... Um, or a sizable percentage, I think is what I was trying to say. I've had people see two creatures running along a road together. That was in upstate New York. I've had a group of people see three of them together kneeling almost like a human would kneel and drinking water by bringing it in their elongated paws up to their uh, muzzles rather than sticking their nose in you know, and lapping like a regular dog would do. One of the most chilling is in my new book, Real Wolfman, and tells about this uh, the sighting just a few years ago in uh, Palmyra, Maine, by a middle-aged professional couple who were sitting on their front porch one night drinking coffee about 10.30. They had a big spotlight because uh, they had a pond that deer would often come to in the, in the nighttime, and they would occasionally 
shine the light and see if there were any deer to look at. And they got this terrible feeling. They, they threw the flashlight uh, all out into the yard, and there they saw five upright canine-like creatures advancing on them, and they were only about 20 feet away, just creeping toward them on the lawn. And they were able to back into the house. Um, the husband had a gun, but it was locked in the garage where his wife made him keep it. <laughs> so he, you know, had no weapons. And they actually called 911. And the 911 operator told him to call the game warden. The game warden told him to stay in the house all night and lock the doors, which, of course, you know, they weren't about to go out running around. So they went upstairs to where their daughter was sleeping and looked out the window and shone the flashlight down at the yard, and five pairs of green-yellow eyes reflected back up at them. Wow. And the creatures stayed there, and they were seven feet tall. Uh, they were able to ascertain because they passed in front of a shed roof or a shed door that they were able to measure later on to find out how tall they were. And uh, they each drew sketches that are in the book. I like to get witnesses to draw their sketches, even if they're not uh, any artists, which most people claim that they're not. But, you know, it gives me a better idea of the details of, and, and helps them to kind of think through also what they saw. Well, that one I found really, really scary. Yeah, it sounds like it. I, I was going to ask you, it, when you're looking at all these reports and, and kind of putting them all together, can you glean what kind of level of intelligence and maybe even malevolence that these creatures have toward us? They do seem more intelligent than you would expect a regular uh, wild animal to be. All the witnesses say that. Uh, it appears that they can recognize what cameras are. Uh, they seem to shy away from them. Um, they seem to be observing the people as much as the people are observing them, much more so than you would expect any wild animal to do. And they also do seem malevolent. People will say, I felt like, you know, it really wanted to hurt me or eat me. I felt like it was lunch. Um, they don't understand why it's restrained. Or there have been instances where people have actually been chased out in the open, and they felt that the creature could have easily caught them if it wanted to, but at the last second it always veers off into the underbrush or the cornfield or whatever's there as cover. And it seems smart enough that it is not caught out in the you know, very open places without some sort of cover. Now have you made any correlations between sightings of these dogmen or wolfmen and uh, hot spots for UFOs? Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the late, great John Keel said, where you find one of these things, you find the other. He called them window areas, where Bigfoot would show up, um, other hairy humanoids, strange big flying birds, lake monsters, and UFOs all seem to frequent the same areas. And I've noticed the same thing. This one spot where we've got the dogman and the Bigfoot, um, we've had some UFO sightings as well. And, you know, I don't know why that is. Some people think that the creatures are coming out of the UFOs. Some people think that they're all manifestations of some type of earth spirit or geomagnetic energy that can interact with the human brain and that perhaps we just have these um, idealized figures that are sort of hardwired into us that we, we see wolfmen and Bigfoot and shining lights in the sky when, you know, when we interact with these either spirits or, or geomagnetic forces. Um, 
you know, and again, these are these are all theory and speculation. I can't vouch for one or the other, but um, you start to wonder after you notice that these things are occurring in in clumps and that they do seem attracted to ancient sacred sites. You know, I've made some definite correlations in that area. Um, you know, why is that? You don't find that sort of thing with gophers or foxes or or coyotes. You know, they're just they just run wherever they want to run, wherever it seems, uh, you know, like a good place for them to go. So why with these things? You know, and why why is it so hard to get a picture of them? I have so many witnesses that have seen them clearly in broad daylight at close range and have passed stringent polygraph tests that I believe the great bulk of the witnesses, once in a while there's a clinker in there, you know, but the great bulk of the witnesses, I believe, are thoroughly honest, and yet we can't get pictures of them. But, uh, you know, if a bear comes into Madison and climbs a tree in someone's backyard and they see it, there are going to be videos of it all over the evening news. Well, you said once in a while in those polygraphs you get a clinker, but I wonder if that's because well, they... Well, not in the polygraphs, but just in, in the um, the letters that come to me. Well, I was going to say, I wonder if some people have a problem with that because they don't believe what it is that they saw. You know, it's hard to, to believe that you're telling the truth if you don't believe in what you saw. And the other thing I find interesting, she's talking about these uh, creatures and UFOs and whatever all happening in certain areas, like what we have here known as the Bridgewater Triangle. Right. There, there are these window areas like right. she's saying that it happened in various spots around the around the country and around the world so well that was going to be one of my questions for you linda is we have a lot of reports and we do have a call on the line so just hang on a minute caller but uh we have a lot of reports here in what we call the bridgewater triangle of bigfoot sightings of those phantom dog type creatures uh thunderbirds different types of anomalous uh animals right has, have you ever heard of any of these uh, dogmen sightings uh, here in the Massachusetts area? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting more and more from the East Coast, you know, and right now one, there, isn't, there isn't anyone that's popping forth and suggesting itself to me at the moment. But, yeah, um, strangely, Maryland seems to be a hot spot, you know, and, and, now Maine, and I know Maine has had Bigfoot reports for a long, long time. So any place you have a well-watered area with... Um, some nice forest habitat and maybe uh, a few nice fat farm animals or, or pets. They both both of these creatures actually seem um, more likely to grab pets than anything else. Or chicken. Chickens are, seem to be another favorite. But um, I did want to mention the the polygraph tests. Um, the very first episode of Monster Quest on History Channel was called American Werewolf, and it was based on my book, Hunting the American Werewolf. And they had me just round up seven or eight witnesses, whoever I could get that was handy, that didn't have to travel a long way. You know, So they were a pretty motley crew. And then they brought in um, one of the best polygraph experts in Minnesota, uh, who actually is, is uh, freelances for a lot of the Minneapolis police departments when they need somebody really good. Every single eyewitness passed with flying colors. Wow. You know, and the producers were shocked because there were a couple witnesses. There was this one young guy who, whose sightings seemed a little bit um, unusual compared to the other sightings, and they were sure he was going to flunk, and he showed absolutely no evidence of deception. And I didn't have – I was a little embarrassed to ask them, like, you know, I thought, well, maybe they're going to think that 
I'm implying that they're lying about these things. But they all said, sure, I'll take whatever you've got. I know what I saw, and I'll tell anybody about it. Well, Monster Quest is a great program, and, and we thank you for your contributions to it. Moniz and I had the dubious distinction of being on the one episode of Monster Quest that they like to pretend never existed. <laughs> oh. We were on the, the ghosts episode, yeah. <laughs> and it's the one that never gets rerun because every time they show it, there's such outcry well, on the internet. Ghosts are not a, a creature. They shouldn't oh. be on Monster <laughs> Quest. Well, that's what was funny because they kept rerunning that particular episode the first year when they filmed it and uh-huh. hasn't been aired since. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's well, probably I'm, a DVD extra somewhere. But. I'll have to see if I can look that one up. I also was in the very final episode of season four. So I was kind of the, the beginning and the ending when uh, we went to Michigan and uh, kind of debunked the Gable film hoax. Well, we have a call on the line. If anybody wants to call in uh, before the end of the program, the numbers are 508 996 if you have any questions for our guest, Linda Godfrey. Regarding some of these creatures, and it's not just Bigfoot, it's not just wolfmen and dogmen, it's all kinds of things, sea serpents, all kinds of creatures, uh, even, you know, the the elusive Monizas that are out there in the <laughs> wild. So let's go right to the phones. Good evening, yeah. you're on Spooky South Coast with Linda Godfrey. Could we have your name, please? Uh, hi, it's Gail. Hi, Gail, how you doing? Hi, um, actually I wasn't able to get through on the um, telephone, so I mean on my cell phone, so I decided to just call in. I didn't know, though, that you were talking about Bigfoot and stuff. No. I know nothing about Bigfoot. <laughs> well, uh, I mean... Have you, have you... I know nothing. I mean, I don't believe Bigfoot exists. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, do you think that it could even exist? No. No. Why? I really don't. Why do you think that? I believe now in the supernatural since the death of my son... Because I've had signs, but I don't really feel that there is actually like some kind of a a Bigfoot or a monster serpent or why you know like um, why do you have that have that view? What what brings you to that conclusion? Um, I guess that I feel that we would have seen it by now. No, that's not true because we discover close to 3,000 species per year, and uh, some of them are quite large, including species of whales and sharks that are over 30 feet long. So, And people and are it, seeing it. I mean, it's seen really often. It's astoundingly often. They are seen very often? Yeah. Um, if you ever... <laughs> If you ever um, check check out any any of the just Google Bigfoot and you'll just come up with so many many of many many amazing of accounts. The different. Um, I thought that the big main one wasn't it like in Europe somewhere. Well, Where is Bigfoot there, there supposed are to be? Very similar. This is an interesting thing too. Is that there um, are very similar creatures, large anthropoids ape-like creatures covered with fur all around the world. Um, the Yeti is one. Um, they have one in Russia. Um, the the outlands out of, of China, There's you know, and they all have different names. And they also go back in Native American history where almost every Native American tribe has some sort of name for them, 
whether it's the Oma or um, the Big so Man. in other words, do you feel that like yellow hairy bark that one? I'm I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Do you feel any of our national parks have a Bigfoot? Um, they have been seen, yeah, in lots of national parks. There's there's actually a man, uh, David Paulides, who's written a couple of books about the great numbers of disappearances of people from national park systems that uh, he sort of hints might be related to um, Bigfoot snatchings, which I, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, I have no yeah. idea. But um, he documents uh, sightings in, in national parks. Michigan, for instance, um, has the Million Acre Manistee National Forest, which is just a hotbed for both sightings of Dogman and Bigfoot. Oh, wow. Mm. What about Salt Fork in uh, oh, Ohio? Oh, yeah. I was out there. I was a speaker at their last conference in May and was actually astounded at the number of sightings that have been in Salt, Salt Fork Lake Park. Um, one man gave a presentation on them, and I was just amazed. You know, there are just dozens and dozens. Don Keating? Um, it was Doug Waller. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Gail, thank you for calling in. Thank you. It's nice to finally hear the sound of your voice. Yeah, hey. <laughs> and I'm I'm sorry it was on Bigfoot. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. You <laughs> might you might want to tune in next week because we're gonna have uh spirit mediums Tiffany Rice and Stephanie Burke here in studio and they'll yeah, be taking be some neat. calls and giving some readings. So you might want to check that out. That'd be neat because I'd know more about that than Bigfoot. Sure. All right. Nice but, and I will you. study up on Bigfoot and dogmen. Thank <laughs> you so much. You can get the book, The Real uh Real Wolfmen. Okay. And, you know, I always tell people, I think it's better to stay a little skeptical and just keep an open mind than to swallow everything. Well, there's a lot of stuff I've learned the past three years that I've never believed. Right. It's amazing. When you open your mind, you know, you you, you just become a lot more alert to things. Yeah. No, I've got a lot to learn. Well, thank you so much for the call. Okay. Have a great night. Okay, thanks. Good night, Tim. Right. And uh, it, it, you're right, though, Linda. I mean, the problem is, is when you uh, you might enter into a certain subject not really having a, a belief that it can occur or that it can exist. And then what happens is you start chipping away at that a little bit. And then you don't know where to draw that line anymore. Because how can you say that one thing that we're talking about that seems right. impossible can exist and another thing can't? It's really true, you know. And that's why I, I think it is good to just, Stay rational, and whether you're looking into the, the phenomena of ghosts or unknown humanoids or UFOs or whatever, I think the big thing to do is to always look for all possible mundane answers first. Mm-hmm. You know, what known animal could this have been? Um, was that a ghost or was it a reflection coming from that window over there? You know, that kind of thing. You really have to be very careful to rule out every possible um, mundane answer before you can even go there to the more unthinkable explanation. But I think Gail had the right idea because she said she's you know willing to do the research and to exactly. look into it, and that's the key to anything that you right. you don't understand. Right, that's a very intelligent approach, and and I think a combination of being open to the to the research and saying uh, you know rational about it, you know, could it be something else, and, and ruling out other possibilities, those are the two things that will keep you grounded. Well, now, I, I guess I should ask you kind of the, the million-dollar question, and that's, of all the encounters that you've 
written about, that you've researched, that you've taken in over the years, have you had your own personal encounter with one of these creatures? Well, perhaps. <laughs> it's, it's hard to say exactly, but it was about, about uh, six years ago, and I was on location with some witnesses and a History Channel cameraman on a deserted gravel road in rural Michigan where some witnesses, several witnesses had seen both a seven-foot-tall gray-furred upright canine and a slightly shorter brown-furred one. And it was about 2.30 in the morning, 95 degrees, mosquitoes. We were, we were in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there couldn't have been, if anybody was trying to hoax us in a fursuit, they were real severe masochists, you know, because I don't know how they could have survived the, the heat. But we kept seeing yellow eyes staring at us from the bushes, and something kept running around the outskirts of the spotlight. And at one point, something ran across the road just beyond the spotlight, and it momentarily illuminated the thing's back. And the, the back was vertical. There was gray fur I could see. And when it ran across the road, it blotted out a road sign that we measured it being seven feet tall. So we knew it was seven feet tall, it had gray fur, and it was vertical. And at that point, one of the witnesses also saw it, and then immediately insisted we all leave. They they just got really scared again because they'd had one of them chase their car at one point. So I may have seen the back of one, <laughs> but you know, it's just it's still hard for me with my reporter's hat to go beyond that and say, well, I know for sure it was a dog man because I didn't see its head, I didn't see its arms or legs or paws or tail or anything else like that. But it does correspond with what the witnesses said, and, you know, it, it certainly didn't look like any human running across the road. And we did get a question from the chat room. Somebody wanted to know if there is any truth to the, the myth, to the folklore idea of the fact that the full moon is tied into a lot of these sightings. Um, actually, I haven't ever found a big correlation between sightings and full moons. And for, for one thing, a lot of the sightings are two, three, ten years old, and people can't remember if it was a full moon or not, or mm -hmm. they didn't notice or it was overcast, you know. And when they do, um, they're just as likely to say, you know, it was, it was not a full moon as it was. And personally, I think that if the full moon did have any effect, it would merely be to better illuminate the night so that people would sure. be more likely to be able to see something. You know, if you're driving along, there's a full moon, and it's gleaming on the snow or the fields and everything's bright and there's a creature, you're much more likely to see it than if it's one of those black nights where the only light is from your headlights. I used to love those old B-movie horror movies from the 40s and 50s. And yeah. I'm not talking about the, the classic Universal monsters. I'm talking about, like, the ones where they just kept rehashing things later on. Right. And, and you'd see a scene where it's, like, a dark, stormy, foggy night with thunder and lightning, and then all of a sudden you'd see a full moon come out. And then there'd be more thunder and lightning, you know. Just it was kind of like a little bit of whatever they needed, right? Exactly. Well, I, I think too that when you're looking at, you'd mentioned the idea that the full moon uh, will illuminate and, and cause for more sightings. I think a full moon is probably more memorable to people too when they're right. having this encounter that because of the mythology associated with it. That's uh, a good point. Yeah. You know, you might be like, oh yeah, I checked. You know, the moon was full, but then any other phase, you're kind of like, eh, was it waxing, waning? I don't, I don't know the difference. Right. So are there certain um, 
you said you'd mentioned certain locations, but are there certain uh, environmental factors? Like, do you have more sightings in the summer or in the spring? Um, probably they pick up around August and tend to peak around uh, by the en- by the end of no- November. Between August and November are probably the greatest number of sightings, but they do occur all year round. I've had them occur in winter, um, in summer day, night, although most of them, I once did uh, a little survey of my own and found out that uh, the bulk of them were between 10.30 p.m. and about 5 a.m. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you if they were maybe if they were a hibernating creature, but if you've had winter sightings, then probably not. No, uh, they do seem, you know, I imagine they have to get out and, and, and forage just as they do other times, but I'm quite sure that it's probably a lot harder to get around without being seen mm. in and the winter, you know. And, and leaving tracks that are And leaving tracks, exactly. That's uh, but that time that we followed them for almost a mile into these this series of cornfields uh, where nobody knew we were going, by the way, and nobody, this was, that was in January. And we had um, a snow, ma- well, we had kind of a January thaw, it was like 50 degrees, so the top layer of dirt had softened, and then the snow had melted down to like a crust on top of that. So we had really good conditions for for footprints. And it was probably thinking, man, nobody's going to know I'm in this cornfield. I can just walk, you know. Nobody's going to follow me here. But it just so happened that we saw the farmer's pit bull sniffing around in this odd place. And we thought, well, what's it interested in? And then we went over there and saw the first footprint, and then the next, and the next. Now, have you ever found any kills or reports of any kills or physical, other physical evidence like uh, fecal matter or whatever that that they could definitely tie to these animals? No, um, you know, I've I've had people turn in hair samples that turned out to be raccoon or cat. Um, I've had a woman who heard something run on two legs across her roof and then and put its foot through and left six-inch uh, footprints in her flower bed when it jumped off the roof. Um, and, th- and there was a large pile of some kind of, of scat up there with a turkey claw in it, <laughs> which made you think, you know, maybe it swallowed a, a lot bigger part of the turkey. And I dutifully collected that scat off of her roof by standing on a bar stool. Luckily, it was kind of a low roof. It was on her roof? Yeah, it was on her Whatever it was had climbed up a tree that kind of abutted the back of her house, jumped onto her roof, and run across. She actually called the police because she thought maybe there was an escaped criminal running across her roof for some strange reason, You know, even though she would have been in an odd spot for a criminal to you know, want to go on her roof. But, um, you know, and the, and the police were more or less made fun of her. But called me and, and we discovered this large pile of scat and I took it to a friendly DNR agent and uh, he determined that it was from a raccoon. Um, the reason it was so large was that raccoons latrine. They like to go in the same spot over yeah. and over. So it very well could have been that it was a dog man because I've had prints from around that area and other reports from very close to there chasing one of those raccoons for all we know. Well, I'll just throw it out there. Remember the paranormal poop, Moniz? 
on top of uh, on the top profile the rock, rock. on yeah. a little outcropping of rock at the top of a, a small uh, rock formation. It's 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 like a little rock hill, uh, but it's in a very hard location for an animal to have gotten to. I mean, it, it's on such a little outcropping that sticks out that like no dog would have really been able to walk out there and, and take a squat and. You know, right. I, a, a person I couldn't imagine would have done it either because of the odd angles that were then involved. Then again, you but never know yeah, out there. But, people uh, are but definitely not for a dog to get up this thing because this thing, for all intents and purposes, had vertical sides that you, oh had, wow. to, that you had to climb, seriously climb. So who knows? You never know. But um, I've, I've heard of people finding large piles of uh, what they think is Bigfoot scat. You know, it looks sort of human-like, getting into the growth factor here now, but... Um, it's always a good way to end the program is, is <laughs> talking about scat. There you go. I, and I guess there are certain laboratory investigations allegedly pending for both uh, scat and fur as, as regards Bigfoot anyway. So a lot of people are waiting, holding their breath for that one. Well, that's like we always say here when... You know, people ask us uh, if we believe something. We say, well, does a Bigfoot poop in the woods? <laughs> so has to go somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think uh, in talking about uh, defecation and fecal matter, that's usually where we end the show. <laughs> and <laughs> Sometimes that's where we start the show, too. But uh, why don't you uh, let people know, too, uh, how they can get in touch with you if they want to share some more sightings that have happened since the book have come out, if they have an experience and they want to share it with you. How can they get a hold of you? Right. Um, well, the easiest way is to go to my website, lindagodfrey.com. And if you go on the About page, uh, I think it's at the end of my bio, it tells you how to get my, my email is listed there. Um, you can also go to, although my I have two kind of static sites that are sort of crumbling, beastofbrayroad.com and weirdmichigan.com, but you can still go and email me from the links there. So either one of those two. And they both still uh, contain information that's worthwhile. Um, but lindagodfrey.com would be the main one to try. And it's linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. Thank you. Oh, no problem. Glad to do it. Is there uh, is there anything uh, coming down the pipeline that you're working on now? Well, I'm just in negotiations with Penguin to do a follow-up book that maybe has a little broader scope. I can't say much else about it. Sure. And I actually will be... Um, having my first fantasy novel released very soon, and it does not contain a werewolf or, or Bigfoot. Nice. Well, we will look <laughs> forward to that. But the, the current book is called Real Wolfmen, True Encounters in Modern America by Linda S. Godfrey. And, again, check it out, lindagodfrey.com. You can order the book, and you can uh, find out for yourself uh, whether or not these wolfmen are real. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. Oh, hopefully, thank you. Hopefully we can have you again sometime. Anytime. It was my pleasure. All right. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's so nice to finally get her on the show after reading her work for all these years and talking about her work, and uh, we we finally got to have her on the program. So, thank you again for joining us. And I, I'm excited to get a copy of this book. I haven't received it yet. I know it's supposed to be coming, and I I want to really delve into this and and see the correlation between some of these reports because it sounds like she's doing the right stuff, putting yes, putting does. together all the uh, geographic factors and everything else. So. Well, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with another program. We're going to have Tiffany Rice and Stephanie Burke, the spirit mediums that we use at our Legend Trips events, and the stars of Spirit Connections on Spooky TV, which is Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. We're going to have them on the program here to talk with us about their work. 
uh, about some of the sites we're going to be uh, examining for our Legend Trips events uh, this October. And we're also going to take some calls and, and maybe give some readings out on the air as well. Uh, you can also tune into their show again Tuesdays at 7 on Spooky TV. And don't forget Wednesdays at 9 o'clock now. We moved the show an hour back. Uh, Wednesdays at 9 o'clock is Spooky Crossroads with myself and Chris Balzano. So it's your way to stay spooktacular all week long as we head here into the Halloween season. So SpookySouthCoast.com, that's the place to find all the content. LegendTrips.com, that's the place to purchase tickets to the events. Until next week, we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>